Alec is an office worker in Manchester. He spends his week commuting to and from the office, nipping out for lunch, looking after his family at home and treating himself to the odd pint. And then the weekend comes and Alec slips into his combat gear and heads to the countryside for a fierce confrontation. This is the Manchester Weekly from the mill. I'm Daryl Morris and The Mill's editor, Yoshi Herman, is with you as ever. Yoshi, what a story we've got this week. Yeah, this is such an interesting one. Jack Walton, who's one of our new writers, went out with these hunt saboteurs. So these are people who are opposed to fox hunting. They kind of suspect that fox hunting groups are still actually killing foxes and they're not abiding by the law. And they go out and they try and disrupt it. It's such an interesting piece. It's the first time we're talking on the podcast about a piece that we haven't even published yet. So you guys can tell the story and then people can read a bit more detail about it on the mill this weekend. But yeah, really fascinating. Okay, looking forward to that. Uh, Firstly, let's get you briefed with everything you need to know. We always start the podcast with the briefing, some of the big stories happening in the city that you love. It's been a while since we started with COVID news, but cases of COVID-19 are rising again. Yoshi, what's happening? Yeah, I think it's not time to panic at this point, but the Greater Manchester's case rate is up 8.5% in a week. England's case rate, which is actually a bit higher than Greater Manchester's one, is up you know, about the same, 10% up in a week. There's no huge cause for concern there. But we have had some updates from hospitals that sound a little bit more worrying. Now, on the narrow case of how many people with COVID-19 are in Greater Manchester's hospitals, it's not too terrible. There's 53 patients in there with COVID-19 in critical care. That's a little bit down from the week before. It's less than a third that we saw in February. The concerns are around the fact that the hospitals are filling up with lots of other people as well. So that little contingent of COVID-19 patients, I mean, that's the ones in critical. There are hundreds in our hospitals who are not in critical. That is kind of putting pressure on hospitals because they also have all the normal people. And so, you know, Sir Richard Lees, who is, you know, the deputy mayor of Greater Manchester and who leads on health, he said last week that our hospitals are 93% full on average, which he described as extremely uncomfortable. He said any number over 85% is, you know, really concerning. So the number of people in that position in hospitals has been rising. And the question is why? The health partnership has pointed to a few different reasons. One of them is that the impact of COVID means that some patients' conditions have essentially become more serious, um, so they need longer recovery time. So apparently that's keeping some people in hospital who are recovering from other things. Then there is the increased number of patients with complex needs. They identify that as another problem, although it's slightly unclear why why that's increased. And then there are sort of workforce issues, i.e. the kind of medical professionals required to discharge patients is, you know, there are certain people who can do it, certain capacity of those people, certain people with that capability. They're not always on hand at the right time to discharge people. So effectively, there's a kind of a bit of a bottleneck around discharging people who may medically speaking, don't need to be in hospital. So that's contributing. The presence of COVID-19 patients in hospitals is contributing. Lots of other things seem to be going on as well. And that's why we're in this position where hospitals seem to be relatively full at the moment. Okay. Interesting and important context to that story. Uh, Elsewhere, Yoshi, there have been a spate of grey boxes popping up on the streets around Manchester. If you haven't seen this for yourself, the chances are you've probably seen them pop up on social media. People seem keen to talk about it and share them. What's going on? Yeah, people are angry about this. This is a 
a set of 86 grey boxes that have sort of appeared on streets across the city. These grey boxes are effectively part of the installation of upgraded digital advertising, you know, the kind of ads you see um, flicking around on, on, on the street. Now, the boxes that are currently there are apparently covers to protect the wiring because, you know, these, these new advertising units being put in. But people have been getting really angry with them because they're really wide. They're like, you know, extremely wide, well over a metre wide. And what someone's done this week or what a group has done this week is they've put signs on these boxes saying, you know, basically, fuck these boxes. And I think it's ignited a bit of a sort of Twitter and social media thing. It's like, why the hell is a council that wants us to walk more and a council that wants us to be more pedestrian in the way we, you know, do things, putting these in the way? The counterpoint from the council, as reported by Helen Pidd in The Guardian, whose story is well worth a read, the counterpoint from the council is this is a initiative that's going to make us a few million pounds a year from the advertising and from the, and from the rent that we get from these units. And on a lot of these sites, almost all of them, there were already advertising units in place. They might not have been this big, but there were already advertising units in place. So, you know, it's it's one of those ones where there's a real trade-off. I mean, councils, you know, Manchester City Council is having to cut 40 million from its budget next year. Councils have to weigh up different competing concerns, you know, the anger of people on Twitter, the ability of people to get down the pavement without any obstruction with the fact that they need to make money. And it's a, it's an interesting trade-off. You know, the new council leader who's coming in in December, Bev Craig, basically explained to The Guardian that, you know, this is this is a difficult one for us because we kind of need the money. So it's going to be interesting to, to see how it plays out. OK. Also, speaking of how the city looks, Yoshi, since the dawn of time, it feels, a debate has been raging about what to do with the viaduct that runs through Castlefield. Some people suggesting it could be a garden, a bar an extension of the tram line. I think every possible suggestion has been floated. Today, a development. Yeah, so the National Trust has had this plan that we've known about for a few months now to turn this railway viaduct into a park in the sky. Um, It's been approved by the council today. The National Trust said it's going to transform this Grade 2 listed viaduct and they call it a free-to-access park and meeting place, although there will be some sort of booking system to get onto it to manage the numbers, apparently. And they actually say it's going to be open by summer 2022, so next summer, which is really, really fast. Like You expect these things to take years to come together. So this was built in um, 1892, this viaduct, and it actually hasn't been used since, I think, you know, late 60s, early 70s. So it's really cool that it's happening. I think a lot of people who live around there, because, you know, 20 years ago, almost no one lived around there. Now quite a lot of people do. So it's obviously really nice for them to have a park. I think it brings to mind for a lot of people what happened in New York with the High Line, where, you know, a railway line was turned into a, a walking venue. That was extremely popular when I lived in New York. You know, you'd, you'd walk along there. It was a lovely thing to do on a, on a weekend. It also raised the rents and the house prices of everything around it because it just became such a gentrified area, that bit of Manhattan. And it will be interesting to see what happens in the one in Manchester, whether any of those sort of effects happen. But I think a lot of people will just be happy that something's happening with this uh, unused space. I'm just happy the debate's over, finally. (laughs) Okay, Yoshi for now, thank you. Deep in the Staffordshire countryside, amongst the tweeting birds and the rustling branches, a fascinating bad-tempered battle rages a standoff between country dwellers and city folk from Manchester. Office workers, plumbers, teachers who spend their weekend kitted out in combat gear and chasing through woodland after suspected fox hunters. The Mill's new writer, Jack Walton, joined them for a hunt 
didn't you, Jack? I did, yeah. I mean, I think the weirdness of this sort of whole scenario we've got here really struck me when we were on our way down and we stopped like a service station, Starbucks, you know, for a bit of breakfast and whatnot. And there I was, sort of surrounded by all these guys doing an ordinary job in the week. And there they are in their mock paramilitary gear, their tactical belts, their cargo trousers, all kitted up. And I'm just thinking, you know, what must <laughs> what must the morning commuters and the uh, everyday coffee getters be thinking <laughs> of this site? It's, it's all quite weird, really, yeah. OK, so tell us who they are, Jack. Who are the Manchester saboteurs? I mean, saboteurs, I mean, there's loads of groups around the country. They're part of the Hunt Saboteurs Association. And they believe, essentially, that the foxing ban that came in in 2004 is being flouted week in, week out by Hunt. They're not hunting trails, as they say, artificial trails. They're actually hunting foxes. And so, like I say, they kit themselves up, they get their balaclavas on, they head out into the countryside on the weekends to try and stop it themselves. And so they think that the fox hunting ban isn't being adhered to, is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. And so they are ordinary folk as well. So this is the really interesting juxtaposition, isn't it, between who they are in the week and who they are at the weekend? Yeah, I mean, that's what struck me. I mean, a lot of these people said they were just doing menial office jobs. Um, They had an ex-member who was a teacher. They had plumbers, uh, nurses, a dog walker, I think. You know, sort of standard jobs they're doing on the week. And then, like you say, this is this strange juxtaposition where where their life sort of, (laughs) at the weekend, they're living out this kind of second existence. Okay, so you're on your way to Staffordshire with them. Yeah. You get into the countryside and the hunt begins. Take me there. What happened? Yeah, so we sort of pull up at the meet, which is where the fox hunt all gathers at the start. Uh, I think it was at 11 o'clock. They're all gathered around. They've got their supporters who are like, they're not involved in the fox hunt themselves, but they, they come along to cheer them on. And then they've got the terrier men who are like the enforcers of the fox hunt. They go around on quad bikes, they're supposed to be fixing gates and things, but they're also getting involved in the back and forth with the saboteurs. They like to get a bit aggressive, they like to get a bit mouthy. And then you've obviously got got your hunt in there, you know, as you can imagine, in there, hunting attire, all up on their horses, about 30-odd of them. And as soon as you get there, there's this cagey atmosphere, saboteurs throwing a little bit of abuse at them. It's all a bit of that sort of psychological warfare, you could say, going on between the two sides, trying to get underneath each other's skin. And then it kicks off at 11 o'clock, and the Sabs sort of pursue them on foot, others circle round in the car, and it becomes this tactical game, sort of chasing them, trying to get hold of them, but also with that sideshow of, like I say, that psychological game to it, though, the back and forth, the abuse, the, uh, the mouthiness. Active! Come on! Cut! Have you laid a trail through there, Robert? He's just hunting illegally! We've seen the foxes already today, running away from you. Are you proud of yourself? So what are the saboteurs trying to do? They're trying to save foxes, essentially. They believe that these hunts are not hunting trails, like I said. They're hunting foxes, and they're trying to sort of draw the foxes away from the hunt's attention, get them to safety. Or what they try and do is they try and draw the hounds away by using all their equipment. They've got these horns, they blow on, they've got these gizmos that recreate the sound of a, a hound in cry which is the sort of sound a hound makes when they're onto an animal. That draws them away. They also use their voices, so they do these weird, like, mating call style things where they go, Leave it! Leave it! Leave it! Leave it! Back to him! You leave it! Leave it! And it's all very surreal is the only way you could describe it. Wow. So they're trying to entice the foxes away from the hunt trying to entice the foxes or the hounds yeah or the hounds yeah. and so the the hunters 
say that they aren't out there to kill foxes and that the saboteurs have got this wrong, I guess. Yeah, they say they're basically intruding upon private land and a legal activity. They say that the terrier men go out in the mornings, lay a trail for them to hunt after, and that there's no intention to harm any foxes. And these standoffs that happen during the hunts, before and after, clearly, yeah. can be really intense, can't they? They can be really intense, yeah. I mean, the hunt itself is sort of under strict instruction, if you like, from their higher-ups not to rise to the presence of saboteurs. So they keep tight-lipped, the people on the horseback, that is. But you've got the support and the terrier men, like I said, and they're really getting involved in the back and forth. They, you know, they, it's, all, it's all the sort of uh, insults you can imagine, I, I, I guess. It's sort of, you know, about you know, not having a wash or, uh, you know, haven't you got anything better to do with your time? Lazy sort of city layabouts, students who don't understand the country world. Off the land, please. Mate, you're allowing illegal activity on your property. Look at the state of you, Doc. Look at the state of you, you fat fucking belly. Look at you. Look at you, mate. Mate, you're allowing illegal activity on your property. I've heard the worst of the worst, and that isn't it, mate. So fuck off. I think they think that there's a like a second law that applies, a law of the countryside, but city folk just wouldn't get and to sort of come down here intrude upon it they're missing a point somehow so who are the terrier men yeah terrier men are very much the sort of the bouncers of the hunt if you like their role pre-ban would have been going around and if a fox goes to ground they get the hound out of a little box that they've got on the front of their quad digs the fox out essentially and then they get the gun or whatever you know but uh, post-ban, they're sort of handy men, stroke enforcers. They go around, they fix gates, they open gates, they do logistical stuff, but they also get involved in the cut and thrust with the saboteurs. So you get a lot of standoffs throughout the day between the saboteurs and the terrier men. There's two men in particular, um, Sam Stanley and Andy Ball. They're like veterans of the game, if you like. And yeah, I mean, you get all these weird standoffs. I mean, there's, there was one during a roadside refreshments break, I think it was, but they were literally face-to-face, this um, Sam Stanley and one of the saboteurs pushing cameras up in each other's faces, sort of like almost trying to goad the other one. Sam Stanley was sort of saying, um, why are you shaking, mate? Why are you shaking? Why are you shaking? As if sort of like, you know, you're, you're bottling it. And the guy's going back, no, I'm not, you're shaking. No, I'm not. And he's going back and forth, back and forth. He's thinking, what the hell is going on here? The bouncers of the hunt. I like that. So tell me how this works logistically then. So you're, you're, they're sort of like jostling to keep up with each other and, and racing through the countryside with each other? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, you've got your foot sabs, which is the majority, I would say, who are pursuing the hunt on foot, doing the trying to draw the hounds away, fox away. They're chasing across fields, across all this private land and whatnot. And then you've got others that sort of in the car coordinating with the walkie-talkies and sort of trying to drop people off in front of the hunt so you don't lose ground, because obviously horseback is quite hard to keep pursuit for an entire day. But yeah, I mean, you end up straying for a lot of private land, and that in itself brings up a lot of its own clashes. I mean, there's a lot of people screaming at you, get off my land all day, and then at one point there was this farmer came flying over from across a field, shouting all sorts of obscenities, getting up in our face, I mean, getting up in my face as well. I was sort of, and then um, it was quite funny, actually, one of the sabs going, oh, stop, stop, we've got a journalist, we've got a journalist with us, he's going to, he's going to, as if that was going to deter him, but it, it didn't deter him. <laughs> You're now on private land, I would like you to leave, please. Like, you don't run people over. We had a nice interaction earlier, didn't we? You run people over, you'll change the game.
And one encounter that you witnessed with somebody who owns some of this land yep. in the Staffordshire countryside was really quite emotional, wasn't it? She was incredibly upset. Yes. I mean, there was this woman kind of came out and she was virtually in tears. Um, she owned the land. Basically, the saboteurs had chased the fox hunt across her land. It was all very high drama. It was all very intense. And she clearly was uncomfortable with this level of an intense altercation occurring on her land and she came out and she sort of confronted both the sides. She seemed angry at both sides to me. She was sort of uh, criticising me, what are you doing on my land, as you can imagine. And I guess she was talking about the pressure that the countryside industry is under. And this takes us to this really fascinating clash of cultures, doesn't it? Yeah. Between city folk and countryside folk who clearly on so many levels don't see eye to eye. Yeah, I mean, when she got going, when she got going, so she started off, it was this, this, this sort of freeway altercation between three parties. And then it almost turned into this weird, like, sort of soliloquy on the decline of country life. It was almost like she turned and she was breaking the fourth wall and she was addressing the audience. And she was, she, she was uh, what was she saying? She was sort of saying, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get how hard it is to be out here in the country. You know, soon this is all going to be... Amazon warehouses, this is all going to be um, urbanised. Very much expressing the idea that rural life and its culture and its customs is under threat by modernisation, by urbanisation, whatever you want to call it. And um, I, I think that was a running theme throughout the day, really. Hunts, but not just the hunts, landowners, people in that area who, who feel like this situation is almost like modelling this greater decline which is occurring, the, the clash between the urban and the, the country. Mm. And Alec, not yeah. his real name, no, who's one of the sort of de facto leaders of Manchester Saboteurs. Uh, yeah, so Alec, um, like you say, he's one of the de facto leaders of the group. Um, he's been doing it for 11 years now, so he sort of makes him quite a long-serving member, really. And I asked him as we were sort of on the journey home and the motorway was stretched out ahead of us and it was like quite a, a tired atmosphere in the gut. You, you realise it takes it takes a lot out of these people. And I sort of put to him, like, do you envisage a day where you're not going to be able to do this? And he said, like, they feel like they're winning this greater war that's going on where year on year fox hunts are losing money, they are uh, losing prominence. The tide of public opinion is turning against them. But, like, whether that's going to be any time soon, I don't know. And it's funny because he had a wife and he's got a job five days a week. So it's like his whole week, Monday to Friday, work, and then his whole Saturday, that's that, that sort of gone out the window as well doing this, and we were getting back really late. And I just think, like, whatever you say about them, like the, the level of dedication that requires, especially considering he's doing all the social media and all the spokesmercenary type stuff as well, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. It's almost like a double life they're leading. It is exactly like a double life, yeah, and I think the aesthetic of the balaclava also sort of plays into that. It's almost like they're sort of some sort of superhero-y type thing, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. You never know what's going on in someone's weekend, do you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Jack, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. OK, Yoshi, take us into the mill newsroom, my friend, as ever. What are you working on? Danny's working on a really interesting piece where we're catching up with people who we spoke to a year ago who were shielding. So people who, for medical reasons, were staying at home to protect themselves. And we are speaking to them again a year later to say, how has the last year been for you? Have you still been shielding sort of unofficially without the government telling you to? What's it been like sort of coming back into society you know how do you feel about mask wearing or people not wearing masks we wanted to do a sort of follow up to that piece and Danny's been speaking to them this week so I think that'll be a really interesting 
piece and also we're we're working on the print edition there's one more piece that needs to be written for our print edition which is my interview with sir richard lees so i've not just been speaking to sir richard lees i've also been speaking to like a dozen people who've worked with him and uh, that's finally coming together so it's a bit of a team effort now in the office to edit that whole edition ready and it's going to come out just before christmas so we'll be distributing it i think yeah the fortnight before christmas great can't go quick enough okay and as ever we'll give you a nod for something to do in and around greater Manchester in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. Something quite big, actually, uh, bubbling up in the Mill newsroom. Yeah, so we our Miller's Christmas carols at St Anne's Church is going to happen on the 16th of December. So that's my big nod. I think that's going to be my nod every week yeah. until then. It's going to be a lovely <laughs> Christmas concert with carols and other Christmas music sung by the choir there. It came about because one of our members came up to the office and he said, you should chat to the people at St Anne's. They've had a really terrible time in the pandemic. They've lost a lot of their revenue. You know, you're talking like more than £50,000 worth of their revenue which is normally weddings and events and that kind of thing so we thought of this idea of having a joint sort of fundraiser for the mill and for uh, St Anne's and we're going to do it this concert so if people want to get tickets members can get tickets just by clicking the links in in our latest uh, members newsletters uh, in the past few days and um, non-members just go on Eventbrite and put in St Anne's carols and they'll be able to to find that I'm really looking forward to that Nice, okay, me too. Um, My nod for the week, Manchester writer, journalist and author Ed Caesar's book, The Moth and the Mountain, has been shortlisted for the Costa Prize. A real big nod for any author and writer. Um, Ed Caesar is, as I said, based in Manchester, but also writes for The New Yorker, amongst others. Really worth checking out. That's it from us for this week. Yoshi, thank you. Jack, thanks a lot as well. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast, and you can subscribe at manchestermill.co.uk for more stories like this, recommendations, for things to do and deep dives into interesting bits of the city. See you next week.